0: you kindly to take your seats, please. We're running a few minutes late, but it's great to see the conversation in this room. Ah, now my microphone is on. (laughs) Okay. I think we're expecting Francesca. I hope she is still here somewhere. Come and join the panel. All I'm doing now is turning over to um, Phyllis Starkey to chair this panel. And as we move into the second half of our discussion, we start to get more action orientated. Well, you've heard the testimony, so what are we going to do about it? So hopefully you've all got great ideas that you're going to put forward, and I will try to capture them together with, uh, with Sandra towards the end. Uh, I, I think we should begin and hope that Francesca will, will come.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. My, my name is Phyllis Starkey. I'm a trustee of the Balfour uh, Project, and it's my task to uh, to chair this this panel. And just before I start um, introducing it, which also gives time for Francesca to join us, I hope um, I I wanted to reflect on on what we've heard thus far, and and to make two points. And these are my personal points about it. The first is that I think we were absolutely right to um, have such Brutal and honest um, descriptions of the reality on the ground in Palestine. Because when you've been involved in this or in this topic for such a long time, without necessarily visiting Palestine itself that often, you can, despite knowing all about it, you can get detached from the reality of what actually has been done over decades and is still being doing happening at the moment. And it's very important that we get reminded of that reality, because one of the tasks that we, and when I say we, I mean we in the audience who live here in the UK, that it's part of our task after this to remember what we felt like as we were hearing described the um, brutal way in which um, the occupation forces treat children within Palestine, and the um, way in which Palestinians are denied access to the basic Um, um, needs of their lives that they ought to have access to, and which it is actually the responsibility of the occupying power to provide for them. So not only are they not providing it, they are positively obstructing the population from um, enjoying their, their, their rights. So it's best to be reminded about that so that we can use that when we talk with other people about Palestine, that we remember that burning indignation that we felt as those presentations were being made, not to make us over emotional, because that is um, something we should not allow ourselves, but to fuel us to keep going, because we have to do that in order to present the case here properly for the Palestinians and to urge our government and other opinion formers to do what they should do and must do and are not doing in order to fulfill their obligations to protect the Palestinians and to um, enable the Palestinians to reach um, the, the, to be able to express their rights of self-determination and their individual human rights. So keep that indignation and keep it to fuel you, but think coldly and calmly and analytically about where you can best press on the government, on your MP, on people you work with and organizations that you work with to get them to do what it is within our power in the UK to do in order to help the Palestinians in their struggle. So um, I'll now move on to um, Welcome, Francesca, um, to uh, to introduce the panel. Now, three members of the panel you know already, of course, they are Shawan, Francesca, and Melanie, who have spoken already, but they're joined by a fourth, which is Suhad, um, Suhad Bishara, who is the uh, Legal Director and the Director of Land and Planning Rights at Adala, which is the legal Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel. But Suhad has um, had the extensive experience in appearing on behalf of Palestinians in the OPT in land and property cases before the Israeli Supreme Court. And it's that experience which is relevant to um, what we're talking about here today, rather than her experience of equally important of representing um, the rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel within Israel itself. So um, what I'm going to ask each of our panelists to do, and I'll, I'll start, the left the one even though he's only just spoken and moved down um is to focus us on what our government our parliamentarians our civic society can actually do what specific actions would be the most important for us to focus on from the point of view of um, each of our speakers in taking forward the um the ammunition if i can put it that way that we have stoked up at this conference and which we can then use in each of us in our own lives and the BALFA project itself um, will also be be pursuing these same topics um, on our own and with like-minded organizations. So Siobhan, one or two things you think we should be doing.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Willis. I think uh, educated people about what's going on and speaking out about what's going on there, it's very important encouraging people also to come to visit and see reality by their eyes and to engage with the ordinary people, with the victims, with anyone also in the street. This is very important to speak about things and to see things completely, completely, it's different. It's different for everyone. It's not just you know the officials or academics for everyone. Because of that, I encourage you all to come and visit, please. Second, I think, Calling for accountability, this is a very important thing. And ending the culture of impunity, this is an issue. This is the main issue in Palestine. What makes things deteriorating? There's the culture of impunity. Everyone feels that is immune and no one can go after. The third thing is also the uh, settlements and products. I think it's a time... Not to, you know, let the criminals benefit from their crimes and the illegal practices. I'm uh, not let, you know, to ban the settlements of products, I think, to get in the markets here. It's a very important thing. And this is one step and one action meets also the criteria of international law and the principles of international law. Uh, that's you know what i uh, I think about, and the last one is about also the criminals not to enjoy a visa, mm-hmm. to come here, for instance, and welcoming them. Uh, your uh, procedure, also the uh, regarding the uh, your internal system, judiciary system, uh, uh, your procedural law was changed. Mm-hmm after we tried to use it against the criminals here in London. That's an issue I think shows also the double standards that have that. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Siobhan. That That's the, the law on universal jurisdiction, which allows yes. people to take um, out a, a warrant against General Almog, so he stayed on his plane. And didn't actually come down and went back home to Israel.
2: And Ehud um, Barak.
3: And
1: yeah, and Ehud Barak. So well, indeed.
3: Thank you very much, Suantu. Francesca. Yeah, thank you. Very briefly, because I think I already talked a lot and, and I'm very interested in the, in the debate. Um, but there is one thing that is fundamental, and this is why I call for a change of uh, paradigm and approach, is that the, if Speaking with uh, UK policymakers and legislators, that I. I do sense some, some discomfort because they do engage on the question of Palestine. I say, yeah, but we provide aid, yes, you do. Um, and they provide um, input in better cro- economic solutions. They provide humanitarian aid. But what is lacking, what is lacking, is not only, uh, as I was saying before, a full diagnostic of the reality on the ground that doesn't require a, um, a parcel or a fragmented approach, Um, As Melanie was saying, humanitarian aid can never be a substitute for a political solution and the situation in Palestine, now I think it's clear, it's one that requires a, a, a political solution in line with international law. What does it mean in practice? Surely there is the question of accountability. The accountability of, that needs to break this culture of impunity that dominates uh, the life of the Palestinians under, under occupation. And there is, on the one hand, uh, the work of the ICC, which is not moving. And they, and they, surely I don't think that the UK has played uh, a positive role uh, in, their, in their case because, it, I mean, there is... <laughs> Political political pressure that it has been exercised on the, on the on the court, but there is also the the fact that many settlers have British nationality. I mean, they have British American nationalities, and there's I mean, there are cases where these violations are documented. Apart from the fact that again the settlements are a war crime. So this is something that should be considered, but also settlers who are involved in violence should be held accountable. And if it's not possible uh, by the ICC, clearly it's not possible in Israel, but in that case it's the court that needs to mobilize. When it comes to the the other point, when it comes to, uh, to the... To the settlements there are a number of businesses from i mean british businesses who profit who sell and who buy from you buy from uh, from the occupation from the settlements this needs to end and pension funds you know i mean i think that there are uh, and not many good intended people who do not know that their money the money that they put in pension funds to secure their future is used to crush the present of millions of palestinians so this is this is something that you can do this is in in your in your realm of uh, of action and um and and the other thing protect the space for advocacy for free speech for freedom of expression and and again i'm invited i just as i was outside i'm invited to a conference uh, next month and i'm reminded of the ihra definition that so many universities have adopted and now this university invites me but reminds me that I cannot criticize Israel in a given way otherwise I risk to be in breach of the IHRA definition so this is something that really requires a lot of pushback pushback mm. from from <laughs> from you I believe <coughs> thank you very much Francesca I'm soon
1: yes thank you uh, <clears throat>
4: okay, I, I, Um okay I want to add another dimension. Commonly, we address Israel as a democratic state that has a problem of occupation. Once occupation is done, and whatever uh, shape or form that might be, then the issue of the Palestinian people is uh, resolved. Uh, I'm located in a very uh, unique position. Uh, we're a human rights organization, Palestinian human rights, uh, located in Israel. Uh, however we um, tackle all Israeli policies vis-a-vis all fragments of Palestinian people. That includes Palestinians in Israel and the OPTs and refugees. And I can confidently say we have seen it all. Uh, Although commonly the discussion is, Israel cannot be a democracy if it's occupying another people. Uh, I would say it works the other way around Israel. And again, we have seen it all is mobilizing. It's uh, defined racially defined experience vis-a-vis the Palestinian people since 48, 47 and on to the West Bank. And again, when I see when I say we've seen it all racialized territoriality as a result of the definition of the state. Expulsion, displacement happening nowadays, and the nakab against citizens of the state to Judaize territories, the same as we are seeing in Area C, against Masafiriyat settlement, Judaization, and racially designed territoriality. Um, and again, if I want to move to forty-eight, the annexation of the territories that were designed to be under the UN resolution as a Palestinian or Arab state the annexation of corpus separatum Jerusalem, known as East Jerusalem now, the annexation of East Jerusalem, and nowadays the attempts to annex further areas under the same racially designed and defined politics of Israel is beyond systematic. Yeah, something that needs to address how we perceive the occupation how we perceive this system in order to try to conceptualize um, uh, what we want uh, and uh, so on i want i mean i mean you will be the first group to know this but we will uh, commonly israel refers to it's the, the history of the jewish people and and the promised land and and so on however recently there has been a shift also, in this regard, we are all most of us are lawyers uh, on the table. and uh, when we address the Israeli government, you know international law, this is occupation, and so on, uh, surprisingly or maybe not, uh, uh, during my correspondence with the Prime Minister in the past few months following the new guidelines of the new government, I received uh, a letter back in regard to issues related to policies of annexation. And I'm quoting, the area of Judea and Samaria was included in the territory designated for the establishment of the Jewish state in the land of Israel over 100 years ago within the framework of the League of Nations decision that was unanimously accepted at the San Remo conference by the 50 member states there. This speaks international law. This does not speak history or biblical rights or the promised land or whatever. Uh, So there is a shift, a distortion of how international law is perceived. But, uh, uh, and this this shift has been going on for decades now within the Israeli legal system. I mean, I've been litigating uh, human rights uh, cases before the Israeli supreme court and there has been a shift uh, from okay this is an area under belligerent occupation we have obligations under international humanitarian law and so on to a uh, 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 more common discourse of this is part of the land of israel and and the uh, jewish people have a natural right as part of this uh, uh, legal discourse under the israeli uh, legal uh, regime uh, Which brings me uh, again to uh, the the Palestinian case is not a humanitarian case. And uh, this is different from having humanitarian crisis with many fragments of the Palestinian people. Uh, Having said that uh, and having uh, again conceptualized and which is, my suggestion to conceptualize this whole uh, uh, issue as uh, first non humanitarian second it's not an occupation. it's a colonial political regime that is racially designed targeting the Palestinian people since day one before day one even yeah if we we want to address day one as as the uh, uh, nakba happening between 47 and and 49. and uh, for, for many known reasons, I think uh, the language of ending the occupation, the language of stop the violation of human rights did not work. This did not uh, turn anything in the reality of what we are seeing all fragments of the Palestinian people in West Bank, Gaza, 48, and, uh, uh, and, and the refugees, obviously. Uh, so something needs to change in this regard. And I think that change should come, first of all, from conceptualizing the system as such as illegitimate, there is something illegitimate in how this politics is happening. How the system is defining its politics, how the system is practicing and realizing its politics from there, if we realize that there is something illegitimate in this politics, then we can talk about human rights as a system, occupation as a system. There is a colonial goal that we need to address. Once we address that, then we can be a bit more creative in how we uh, end the colonization of the Palestinian people in this regard. I think that would end. Thank you.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me? Okay, is this, yeah? No? I' to give to. yeah. Thank you. Okay, that's better, right? Great. Um, I wanted to start just by following up with on something that um the speaker from Defense for Children International said earlier about a, a shoot to kill policy um that they were observing, and she talked about um nineteen Palestinian children having been killed this year with live ammunition. Um I, I, I think it really matters that account is taken uh, when changes in in policy like that happen. The efforts are made to try to evidence those and to follow follow them up with the Israeli authorities. Um, you know the, there have been consecutively more Palestinians being killed primarily by the Israeli military in in the West Bank every year for the last few years, and that's not an accident. it matters. It matters that the international community notices this and does something about it and raises it and puts pressure on. It also, um, that description corresponds with what we hear from doctors who we support in the West Bank. And you can go to, uh, whether it's Nablus or East Jerusalem, doctors in emergency rooms will tell you that they, um, they have to treat a lot more people, a lot more Palestinians who have injuries to the head, the neck and chest. In the past, it was the limbs. And from a map point of view, that has a practical implication because we need to train people, equip them with different surgical skills and equipment to try to save life when people have been targeted in this area um, of the body. But obviously there's a much bigger question there about something appears to have changed and that matters. It should be noticed and and raised, I think. Um, Let me give a few other suggestions and I'm going to try and be quite targeted on the the British government. uh, Aid, we've talked about aid. We're all in agreement this Um, The cause of this is not a humanitarian one, but there is a humanitarian problem as a result of it. Um, The fact that the British government has cut aid so deeply is a big problem. It meant that last week, for example, in Gaza, if things had carried on for longer, if the um, humanitarian situation on the ground had been worse, my understanding is the FCDO doesn't hold any kind of crisis response fund that it can release in this situation. That's a big problem. Um, for, the, for the British government, and, and, and that should be reversed. The, the roadmap, um, I mean, the roadmap that the British government signed with Israel a few weeks ago, let's just say there's a lot of work to do uh, in revising that. And I hope very much that um, if there were to be a new government after the election, that revising that document would be one of the things uh, on, on the list. Um, and alongside that, just changing the way that the UK is behaving. At the UN Security Council. In the last two or three years we seem to have moved from, we seem to have moved to a position of blocking almost um, everything, almost everything that the Palestinians want to do in terms of access to legal recourse. We now seem to block, uh, basically having the same position as the USA. That wasn't quite the case until, until recently, it's definitely changed um, and we did a radical shift. And actually seeing international law as a framework um, through which to view this situation and international law needing to be upheld as part of the answer, um, as lots of other people have said today, is is, is vitally important. That includes on protection of civilians. Uh, the UK currently holds the pen on protection of civilians at the UN Security Council. Um, it's definitely not a role that it is exercising in any way in relation to the situation for Palestinians, so we should be um, doing our job properly there. Uh... A couple of other things that I would add. Um, these seem these seem like small things in relation to the whole situation, but they're actually just examples of, of what is so wrong. And I think focusing on some of the, the ways in which the current situation plays out and the impact it has on the lives of individuals on a day-to-day basis is really important. So I talked about mother-child separation earlier. The fact that, that, that mothers from Gaza cannot get permits, from the Israelis to be with their critically ill children. Why is that happening? That is that is an example of something that should be taken and tackled, um, uh, almost in isolation from other things. We should be advancing questions like this and, 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 and using them as examples and trying to have them resolved. Access to cancer treatment is another one. Um, the Palestinians are not allowed equipment to carry out radiotherapy in Gaza. That's why you have to travel to Jerusalem that that can't be allowed to continue either. And that's one of the reasons why the difference in cancer survival rates is so different if you're a Palestinian in Gaza or the West Bank, but especially Gaza versus, versus an Israeli. Um, I think those were most of the things that I wanted to see. Um, and let, let me leave you with one other thing, which may seem small, but I think, I think this also matters a lot actually. Um, when politicians, talk about the situation uh, that exists. There will often be recognition in this country from politicians when Israeli civilians are killed by Palestinians. Now, that's that's fine. It's never acceptable to kill, pal- it's, it's never acceptable to kill civilians, uh, regardless of who they are. The same does not happen the other way around. There is very rarely recognition of the numbers of Palestinian civilians who are being killed by Israelis. When I raise this with politicians they often tell me that they don't want to get into a kind of running commentary on the situation on the ground so if you don't want to do that then don't do that but if you if you are going to engage in that don't do it on a partial basis you have to recognize the significant numbers of Palestinians who are being killed the fact that that's going up year on year and that this year uh, we're heading for an even more deadly year for Palestinians than we did last year, and last year was record-breaking in how bad it was. So I think these things matter, and there are tar- um, targeted examples of where action and political attention could make a difference.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Melanie. Right, we've, we've captured all those points, Um we will, um, after the conference, we will be compiling an, uh, an action um, list which will include Many of the the, the points that have already been made and um, and others that we may develop subsequently. Um, So I want to move on to give you the audience a chance to participate. Um, And first of all, I just want to call upon um, a visitor. We have here from from Palestine, which is Professor Marzen. Yeah, who is the professor at Bethlehem University and founder of the Palestine Institute of Diversity and Sustainability and the Palestine Museum of Natural History.
6: Thank you very much. This was a wonderful uh, uh, panel speaker. I I have very little to add. I really uh, wish the international community finally takes on more aggressive action vis-a-vis, especially with BDS boycott, investment sanctions. Uh, Also, as the speakers emphasized, put human rights first. And do actions on the ground. Uh, there are many groups that are doing great actions with, uh, for example, agriculture um, and sustainability projects, uh, whether in uh, the West Bank or Gaza or inside the 1948 areas. Uh, so I would encourage everybody to get involved. And also, we welcome you to come to Palestine I'm here on the small tour of uh, the UK and then Ireland and to the United Arab Emirates, tomorrow I'll be speaking at the Cafe Palestina, so I welcome you at 6.30 if you want to come to that, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. <laughs> right, so can I see who from the audience, and I'm also having trouble with the lights actually, um, who, right that's better, <laughs> sorry. Um, right, can I start with the um, gentleman at the back with the beard? And after you just respond here with the with the next plate, Right, John.
7: Thank you very much. Um, this is actually a very practical thing. Um, universal jurisdiction was mentioned and how the law was changed over General and not. It is widely sought by many people that that basically meant you could not use universal jurisdiction, but that is not actually so, because an excellent organisation which is represented in the audience today, Paravu, lobbied the coalition government at the time, and the approval for a writ of or for a summons to be issued to bring someone, or a magistrate, had intended to be approved by the Attorney General in the draft bill. But as the result of Carbu's lobbying, that was changed to approved by the DPP. Now, OK, the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, is the political appointment, but he or she is independent and a professional person. And so if you have a similar case of someone like General Han Mark or General Barak, to Heathrow, it is still worth crying under universal jurisdiction. It is important that people know that. Um, what you have to do is you have to make your, sure your lawyer goes and gets the consent of the DPP, which is a task for a lawyer, and maybe not the simplest one, but it is no doubt possible. Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, John. I think we note that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and what a relief it's sure. not the Attorney General. Um, Robin.
0: Yeah. I'd like to
7: congratulate you all um, on the organisers' success in the But it's taking up points of yours about the importance of um, speaking out, speaking out in the right way. But I think we all know, looking at uh, the behaviour of certain governments is, uh, over the last 10 years, 12 months, and is declined still to really get a reasonably balanced and uh, not so positive approach to the question of trying to help the fellow and help the settlements. The more you do it, of course, as a charity, the more affected you are, the more likely you are to come under fire. So one suggestion, um, and I know this from my time when I was chair of that, and delighted to see you here on that platform only, is um, how to deal with the inevitable crossfire, um, and particularly how to deal with the charity commission, who are the so called independent organization that has to deal with these kind of um, barrages launched against uh, NGOs like MAP, who speak out in a thoroughly Um, responsible way, but of course it's not how that's portrayed. So you might want to think about that because of the time taken I know by Charity like MAP or Christian and Hayden and I think in dealing with an accusation which is then handled when it probably shouldn't have been by the Charity Commission it's the opportunity costs when they should be dealing with the actual problems that Charter Says that, uh, that they exist to deal with, which is helping the
1: Palestinians. Thank you very much, Robin. I think um, I'll take a couple more, and then if, um, because I think they're going to be relevant to different people. And I ought to go to the other side. Yes. did um,
5: there. I spent some time in Hebron last year and was able to meet with Defence of Child International. And one of the things that was very distressing to hear about them is since we've been designated. Uh, a terrorist organization, how difficult it was for them to recruit staff and therefore get on with their, their work because of the fear from the start, the consequences of being employed by that organization. Um, and I guess it's a question maybe to show one as well because I don't know how much it would need to hack, but how much it impacts on our hack. But I mean, was it nearly two years ago that those organizations were designated as terrorist organizations? There was a bit of a campaign, then there was a campaign a year later and time goes on, and the, it feels to me like, oh, well, that's just the situation the way it is now. How do we make sure that we don't lose sight of some of those really important things and continue to act? And what can we do?
1: Yep. And then a question here. Hello, my name is. Me, <laughs> Quite loud,
7: audience. My name is Jonathan Polder. I represent an organisation called Campaign. Campaign against Misrepresentation, Public Affairs, Information and in the News. The other day, I was watching an Al Jazeera programme, uh, *Listening Post*, where Myria Georgia, a professor at LSE, made this comment: "We in Britain tend to see human rights problems as occurring elsewhere, but we have little to say about human rights failings in our own country. It's almost like..." Human rights are always about someone else's newsmaking, tends to start from the assumption that we have human rights in the UK. Well, uh, I'd like to draw your attention to what Sir Adam Duncan said back in 2014 about those advocating in favour of the Palestinians getting cracked, produced, and bullied for their activities. And then fast forward, you can see this case with the Labour Party of a large number of, of non-Zionist Jews mm. being totally disproportionately targeted as anti-Semitic. Now you may see this as something not really mattering about the Palestinians, but the voice of those standing up for Palestinians is systematically being silent. So it is not silent, the people self-centered, they don't want to speak about it because they're afraid of being attack yourself i've been studying this for years
1: jonathan jonathan i think we've got the point you're making this is a perfectly valid point for you to make but i think we've got the point and we can then comment upon it thank you right okay um so melanie could you respond to the issue about the charity commission
5: i feel like i should be a bit diplomatic when i talk about (laughs) the charity commission as, as a regulator um Look, I think it's no secret that the charities that work on um, Palestine and issues related to Palestinians are definitely subjected to scrutiny um, and uh, sometimes are targeted in 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 other kinds of ways. And I think the case of Christian Aid recently shows this. Some of you may have seen this, some of you may not. If you haven't, then it's worth Googling. Um, They wrote wrote a piece about it in The Guardian a couple of months ago, um, where legal action was taken against Christian Aid in the US, uh, basically because they work on um, the occupied Palestinian territory, and uh, the Christian Aid fought it and and won, but it it cost them a kind of six-figure sum in in doing so, and it's something that lots of other charities wouldn't have been able to do. And it is part of the approach of kind of lawfare, um that is that is used commonly in the us and that we definitely don't want to see being imported um to to the uk so christian aid fought it and won but lots of others wouldn't have been able to and um the fact is it's it's very widely used there we don't want to go down that route here there was i mean look I, i'm a chief executive of a charity i'm very happy for people to scrutinize us ask us questions about our work of course we have to be compliant with regulation and with and with the law Um, of course we do that's part of my job to make sure we we do and we are and, and that's fine it's when it goes beyond that and things um perhaps questions are asked or you know inquiries are made or complaints are made that aren't really coming from a um a, a, a genuine perspective it's perhaps designed as you said to to waste your time and money instead and that's not acceptable we do need to make sure that the charity commission as a regulator is aware of that and able to deal with those kinds of um, actions properly um, and to sort out between them what's what's genuine and what's not. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure that they would welcome support, uh, making sure they're getting that right. Um, the other thing that's worth mentioning, there was recently a letter that went around from the Treasury from the um, sanctions department of the Treasury to every charity who works in Gaza, um, which was related to kind of uh, upholding some of the law around this. Um, and we all, it went to everyone that we know of. And we all had like a small number of days to, to to go back to them with a number of details about our how we work in Gaza and who we pay for what and so on. Um, and that, that, that as, I, as I say, that went to everyone that we know of who works, who's operational in Gaza, either directly like MAP is or through partners like others are, um. And we understand that that was not coordinated with any other part of the government. And in fact, I think the FCDO didn't know that it had happened. So that was quite interesting as well. But, you know, there's definitely a need for, um, I think, positive coordination and and thorough understanding of all these issues by the people who are supposed to uphold them and and make sure regulation is followed.
1: Thanks very much. Um, Shawan, do you want to just um, respond to the question which is asking what the effect had been on on al-Hak of the designation by the the Israeli authorities?
2: We have been under this uh, campaign before even the designation 15 years ago. That's we have been under that one. I mentioned part of the things, but not the full story. Uh, After the designation, we we were not surprised, to be honest with you, because we know one main thing: working in human rights in Palestine, it's not a picnic and it's not a job in the same time. And I think, you know, we have a very strong and good team. And we wrote that also in the media. If you go to the nation newspaper, you can find also an article. Directly, you know, after they uh, closed and they sealed, you know, our offices and read it. Our people, you know, they open it when we arrived early morning, seven o'clock early morning. And it was the first time ever, all of the staff members, they arrived before seven. That's a good thing also, this is shows an issue. And we sat behind our computers and we continued. Even I haven't moved any of the papers from my desk. And we do legal work not because we are heroes, you know, we did all of these things, no, because we do believe about what we are doing. That's the issue. We continue until today. Yes, we are going to the capitals on a daily basis. They threatened part of them, even big capitals in Europe. They were threatened by the Israeli diplomats and the others. They said to them, if you continue funding them, we will confiscate your money. This is in clear words. Some of them, they step back. The rest, they are not, to be honest with you. And we challenge the Israelis to approve their allegations and to give us just an evidence to defend ourselves. What we are asking is due process. That is easy like that. If you have any allegations, could you please prove that? Could you please open the door before me, you know, and to provide me due process? we are continue, we don't know what will happen tomorrow. But as they said, maybe they arrest, they detain, and the uh, military order criminalizing us, it's there in place, they can use it anytime. And also the designation decision by the uh, defense minister, also in a place, they keep it in their hands. Because of that, when we ask, The officials here also in London and others, they have to ask to dismantle, you know, the uh, decision and the military order because it's like a knife on our neck, that's the case. Now they are working with the banking system and others, you know, all of these things. But we have many friends over the world, to be honest with you, and we will continue. And I promise you, I will do voluntary work even I will do voluntary work if we have no money to defend, defending, you know, in human rights, defending human rights in Palestine, it's easy to say that I am defending the future of uh, of my grandchildren. That's, this is important to live free in different situations, free from occupation, free from all of the oppression, oppressions here or there, and from oppressive regime. That's It's enough by itself to encourage me to go early morning to the office and to leave, you know, night time. That's the issue. We are there. We deployed all of our teams, you know, collecting data. We cooperate with the International Criminal Court. We provided them all the information and we will continue doing this. And we will go after also the businesses and the companies, those they are profiting from our blood in Palestine. That's in settlements, those they are investing in the settlements. That's, we will continue that. And the rest of the organization, they do the same, but as I said, the knife, it's on our neck. That's where we are. Thank you.
1: I'm afraid I'm running out of time, but there's a gentleman at the back from Gaza who is our last questioner.
0: Thank you. My name is Samir Shawa from Gaza. Actually, my late father always questioned the timing of the infamous Balfour Declaration. As if he fled Gaza in September 2017 due to the destruction of his home by the British leave, which was stationed uh, uh, West of Gaza, he, he lived with his mother and young sister to Jerusalem to avoid uh, being killed. Actually, uh, uh, on the 10th of December, the same year, uh, 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 L&B, General Allenby entered Jerusalem. And with the declaration of uh, the, the British mandate, the people in Palestine, They welcome, you know, the idea of having Britain improving their their living conditions and and, and, uh, 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 trying to establish the basis for an independent state for the Palestinians. But actually it ended in our Nakba and after the Nakba everybody here knows what happened. But for us, we are actually relying the millions of people who support Palestine all over the world, activists, university students. And now we, we wish the, the conference to, to campaign for banning any restrictions on freedom of speech of anyone criticizing the apartheid system of Israel. If someone criticizing Israel, there, there are consequences. for the the people of Gaza now they have been suffering in the last week of more bombardment Uh, we we believe that the, the, the people who are here in this world they give us hope that they are lobbying for Palestine it's only a matter of time because aggressors will never succeed also apartheid Will not, will not succeed. And we really thank you and urge you to keep lobbying for Palestine.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that that was a bit rushed, but I think we got some very important points, sir. And as I say, everything has been captured. And I'm sorry that our speakers had relatively brief Opportunities to to interact, but I have to draw this to close and hand over to my colleague Sir Vincent Feen, who's going to be um, chairing the panel of members of Parliament, um, which is the next part of um, our proceedings. So thank you, thank you to all thank panelists. You. Here. Thank you. And, um, thank you <laughs>